So please give your full attention now to the reading of God's word from Psalm 63. Receive now God's word. A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this word from Psalm 63. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, the human life in many ways can be described as a story of longing and desire. It almost goes without saying, our lives appear to be structured around this simple truth that we want things, and so we set out in life to get them. And that's how we devote our energies. We want security and material satisfaction and physical pleasure. So we seek out power or resources, or we associate ourselves with people who have those things. We want love, so we enter into friendships and relationships, and we try to treat others well, perhaps in the hopes that they'll also treat us well back, and so on and so on. The fact that we are desire-motivated creatures is so evident and obvious that it's almost silly to say it. We want things, and so we devote our energies to seeking them out. And if we don't find, if we don't scratch that itch, we either look elsewhere, or we despair and we feel like we've been deprived of something important. People throughout the ages have attempted to account for what these desires are and what we're supposed to do about them in order to have a good and fulfilling life. Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, believed that the good life is one where you keep your desires and your appetites under control. You keep it in proper proportion to better, more important things like your reason and your emotions. In the 20th century, the psychologist Abraham Maslow proposed that we have this hierarchy of needs. Some of you may be familiar with that, that pyramid. Um, it's a hierarchy of needs or desires that motivate all our behavior. 
So for Maslow, the good life is having all of your needs met at increasing levels of complexity in that hierarchy. So you start with basic things like food and clothing, and once you have that, you move to safety and health, and then love and friendship, and you and so on. And you go up and up the pyramid until you reach transcendent needs. Some have even tried to do away with desire altogether. Buddhism teaches that desires and cravings are the cause of all suffering. So the good life is one where you totally free yourself from all sorts of desires. Now, God has a very different view of human desire and satisfaction, different from all of these. He does not say you need to put an end to all your desiring because he made you to have deep longings in your soul. Our problem is not that we have desires or felt needs. Our problem, and the problem of all these secular accounts of human desire, is that in our sin, we try to fill that need and find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in all the wrong places, in places that were never meant to provide that satisfaction for us. We need our desires to be reoriented. And that is what the text before us this morning is about. David the psalmist has found the key to our longing, the secret to satisfaction, and he holds it up for us to see and to follow his lead. You and I have longings in our hearts, but we have to seek satisfaction in the right place. And so we will need to take our cues from David here and learn this secret for ourselves. So here is our point of meditation for today, our one-sentence summary of today's sermon. Your desires in life are satisfied by a love that's better than life. Your desires in life are satisfied by a love that's better than life. If you look at our passage, you'll see that this psalm is in three stanzas. And accordingly, I'll be approaching this passage under three headings. First, thirsting for God in the desert. Then delighting in God in the night. And then deliverance by God in the end. Once again, that's thirsting for God in the desert, delighting in God in the night, and deliverance by God in the end. Let's get into our text. We start with thirsting for God in the desert. In this first section, the psalmist gives us a window into the heart and desires of the one who trusts in God. We start by reading this in the inscription. This is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So this is a wilderness song. We know from First and Second Samuel that in his life, David was on the run in the wilderness, not once, but twice. Um, the first time was running away from King Saul before David became king, and the second time was running from his own son Absalom when, his, when Absalom tried to seize power and drove David out of the kingdom. Well, since David refers to himself as the king later in this psalm, we know this was probably from when he was running from Absalom, since David wasn't king yet when he was running from Saul. So here's the situation. David is in the wilderness. He is running from Absalom, his own son. You know, we think of difficult seasons in life. Well, this season in David's life has gone wrong in almost every way you can think of. All of a sudden, he has lost the comforts of royalty. His reputation in the kingdom has been ruined. He's facing the threat of death on all sides. And it's all at the hands of his own son whom he loves. I wonder if that might be the worst part, the real sticker, facing total rejection and opposition from his own son. 
any father's nightmare come true that he has failed as a father? Well, it's when everything in life has seemed to fall apart. It's into this landscape of loss that David defiantly says these words in verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. From the outset, David is teaching us, in the midst of grief and hardship, David tells us that his most desperate need in this moment is for God. And he paints a picture for us here of this need. Imagine that you are out in the desert. The sun is beating down on you. Your eyes and throat are dry and scratchy from the dust and sand. You ran out of water a long time ago. Maybe if you've taken a trip to the American Southwest, you've been in parts of the country where you can actually experience this. Well, this is the picture that David is painting for us here. This is a picture of what's going on in David's soul right now. In this wilderness of life, David knows he needs water. Without water, if you're in the wilderness, you will die, and it won't take very long. David's got a deep need and desire for deliverance from his situation. Of course he wants this terrible season of life to be over and to be restored to peace with his son and to be restored to the throne. But he recognizes rightly that the water that he needs most desperately is not mere relief, not removal from his circumstance, not to be restored to the throne, not to subdue his enemies, but God. He needs God. This is what David is saying here. God, I am in a wilderness, and without you, I die. My whole being, body and soul, is crying out, without God, I die. But David teaches us, right from the outset, where our starting point should be. Oh God, you are my God. Without you, I die, but you are mine. And the implication is, with God, I live, and I have God. What a striking response to a difficult situation. And yet it is the right response for any of us who are in a wilderness. How do we learn to say this? Well, we learn that David knows to say, you are my God, because he and God have history together, a personal history and relationship. Tim Keller brings up this point. You wouldn't use the word my with anybody that you don't have some kind of history or relationship with. You would say, my father, this is my brother, this is my friend. You wouldn't say, this is my stranger. That's quite strange. And here, David says, this, you are my God. <clears throat> so in verse 2, he looks back in his memory and he remembers being in God's sanctuary, beholding his power and glory. And when David was in the sanctuary, he witnessed the grandness and the holiness of God, that God is far above every created thing in his wisdom, his power, his goodness. He is glorious. He is God. And it's in the next verse that David reveals perhaps the greatest lesson that he learned there in the classroom of God's presence. Verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. It was while he was in God's sanctuary 
that David learned the secret to satisfaction. Your love, your steadfast love, is better than life. Just as God is high above the heavens, far above the creation, David says your love is better than life. The love of God that comes to undeserving sinners who repent is just as much an expression of God's holiness as God's righteousness. God's holiness does not just refer to his moral perfection. It also refers to his love. God loves in a way that no creature can, a way that only he can, and it is glorious. It is steadfast. It will not fade away with time, unlike everything else of this world. So David understands that this love is better, more precious, more beautiful, and more satisfying than life, even more sure than life. Ed Welch, the biblical counselor, says that this is the essence of wisdom, to discern and choose by the wisdom given by the Holy Spirit between what's good, what's better, and what's best. And here David proposes a value judgment for us, probably the most important one that any of us can make. Here is life. It's good. But here is something better. Well, how good is life? At its best moments, life can be quite good, filled with beauty and happiness and complexity. And so we often busy ourselves pursuing the good things of life. Food and drink are good. A few months ago, I went up to Fort Lee with some friends to eat some proper Korean food, and I did not know that food could be quite that good. That's what you get when you grow up in Philly. <laughs> Food is good. If you have it, money is good because being able to buy good food is good and financial stability is good and being able to provide for your family if you have one is good. So we got expensive degrees and pursue well-paying jobs and work long hours and we invest and we save because money is good. It's a good thing, it's from the Lord. Being known and accepted and loved by others is good. And so we show kindness to others and we serve others and we work at our appearance and sometimes we seek to do impressive things to impress others by our accomplishments or earn their respect or their love because being known and accepted and loved by others is good. Life is filled with many good things. And in its better moments, life itself is good. And yet, the Bible is clear and insistent that although life and all the good things of life are good, none of them will satisfy the deepest longings and desires of your heart. You may spend all your efforts to secure yourself from hardship or to be worthy in the sight of others, or to add meaning or value to your life to justify your presence and be able to say at the end of the day that it was all worth something. But apart from the love of God in Christ, you'll find yourself thirsting again pretty soon. Personal experience will bear this out. You may get that relationship 
or that increase in income or that recognition you've been seeking for the good and impressive things you've done or for how your kids have turned out. And that may satisfy you for a time, but it won't be long before you start itching with discontent again. Life and these small satisfactions are good. But to have the steadfast love of Christ is far better. We are full-time desire chasers. And again, that in itself is not a bad thing because God made us to have desires. He made us to want to be loved and significant and secure and to have dignity. All these things are hardwired in our souls. We can only find those things ultimately and satisfyingly in God. They are to be found in God alone by design. To seek ultimate satisfaction in anything other than God, whether that be money, reputation, power, or anything else, is idolatry and sin because it is seeking from the creature, the created thing, what can only be found in the creator who made it. It's like trying to fill your stomach on cotton candy. You can, just, it looks so big and wonderful and you can shove it into your mouth by the fistful, but it's just sugar and air. You'll still be just as hungry as you were before. So too with the pleasures of this world. You were made for a far greater satisfaction. And whether you acknowledge it or not, your deep desire is for God. Augustine said it best. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. What is it that you are restless for in this season of life? We've all got something. What have you been chasing after? Could it be that you've been seeking from people or possessions what can only be found in God? Friends, only the love of God will satisfy because only the love of God will last. For those who are in Christ, we may have no idea what the rest of our life will bring. We have the assurance that even if we lose our life or all quality of life, to the day we die, we'll still have something far better than life or quality of life because God's love is better than life. Nothing that life throws your way can change or spoil that. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul puts the point well in Romans 8, for I am sure, hear his apostolic certainty, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This world and the things in it are passing away, but God's love endures forever. Choose what is better. Well, the question then arises, how exactly does this love satisfy our desires? How is it a better satisfaction? And that brings us to our second heading, delighting in God in the night. In this second stanza, David takes us on a walk through the heart that has found satisfaction in God. He shows us the inner workings of what happens when deep longing is met by God's love. Life is still not easy. The suffering has not yet disappeared. We read in verse six, I remember you upon my bed 
and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Where have we found David? He's on his bed and he is meditating in the watches of the night. Now for the ancient Israelites, nighttime was divided into several watches of the night, periods of about three or four hours each. So your time markers would be sunset, 10 p.m., 2 a.m., sunrise. Most people are sleeping at those times. You should be. Some of you aren't. Uh, but David is lying awake through these watches of the night. And perhaps you've had sleepless nights yourself and know this experience firsthand. You lay in bed exhausted, but rest doesn't come. And perhaps your mind and your heart are racing as you lie there sleepless, racked with worry, and it feels like time has slowed down. And you're lying there and the hours trudge on 2, 3, 4 a.m. And then you see the sun come up. It's time to face the hardships of another day. This is where we find David, understandably weighed down with worry, given his circumstance. And yet we find him smiling in defiance of his situation because in his sleeplessness, he remembers God. Verse 7 and 8, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. David is saying, even in the dead of night, when sleep will not come, I will sing for joy because I am in the shadow and the shelter and the protection of your wings. Oh, friends, what if we could say that in our moments of weakness and desire and need? Restlessness, anxiety, despair, painful or embarrassing memories, evil thoughts, these things may attack me in the middle of the night. The pangs of loneliness or unfulfillment or physical illness may beat against me, but under the covering and protection of your embrace, I will, not, I will be not just safe, but untouched. This is the confidence that the believer can have. That my soul clings to you. Like a little girl holding tightly to her mother's hand as she crosses a busy street on a windy day, my soul holds on to you for dear life. In this long and dark night of the soul, David perseveres in faith and remembers God. What if we persevered like this? Well, what is the result of this remembrance and meditation and clinging that David has been doing? Verse 5. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. David is thrilled, even in his weariness. He says, God, I hungered and thirsted for you in my soul. Remember, that's where the psalm began. You've brought me to your table and laid out a feast, a wedding banquet in front of me. Friends, this same feast is offered to you in the gospel. Jesus sees you in your hunger, in the desires of your soul, and he gives you an invitation. Repent, believe, come eat, be satisfied. He says to you, these words from Isaiah 55, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Yes, Jesus has seen that you've been hungry for love and forgiveness and safety and everything else that your heart has been longing for. And he's also seen that you've tried to fill up on all the wrong things. But he's determined to feed you well. So he prepares a great spread for you and tells you to come hungry because he knows this is what you've been looking for all along. What are some of the dishes on the menu at this feast? Here are just a handful of the desires of our soul that Christ satisfies for the believer. Just a few of many. Maybe your past wrongs and guilt weigh you down and your longing is for forgiveness. Hebrews 8.12 says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Memories of your past wrongs may haunt you. They do not haunt God. Maybe you feel forsaken and rejected by others and your longing is for security and love, just to have even one person who will understand you and stick by you. Jesus says in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus tells you to come and he's here to stay. Maybe you feel dirty because of sin that you've done or sin that's been done to you. And your longing is to be made clean and you wonder if you can ever get rid of this ugly stain and this baggage. Jesus says in Mark 1, 41, I will, I am willing, be clean. Jesus is willing. Maybe you hear the constant voice of condemnation, the voice that says you have failed in your responsibilities and are not enough. And your longing is for freedom from such accusation. Well, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You or Satan or others may condemn you, but Jesus does not. Or maybe you are covered by shame that says you are unpresentable. You must not be seen. And your longing is just to be presentable and worthy. Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to the Lord are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Radiant, meaning you are bright and beautiful and worthy of display and honor. There is no more need to hide because Jesus has made you presentable, worthy, radiant. Dear friends, the love of Christ is your ticket to this dinner table. So remember it, remember it, when you find yourself deep in longing and hungry in spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you remembrance in that moment when you need it most. Feast on these and the riches of his grace by faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will be satisfied, Christ promises. That is Christ's promise and his will for you. Now we come to our last section. David has sought after God and he's been satisfied by God's love. Now we're going to catch a glimpse of what that satisfaction does when it confronts life's hardships head on. 
So we come now to our third and final heading, deliverance by God in the end. And on this point, I'll be relatively brief. Now, David has up to this point been intensely focused on God and the delight of being loved by God. But now he brings his gaze back down to earth and he sees that his enemies are still there. The threat has not disappeared. David's enemies still seek his life. He still needs immediate deliverance from them. Well, here's David's parting word on the situation. Verse 9 to the end. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. David looks around at the trouble around him, and he expresses his certainty that his enemies will be utterly put to shame. But he will come out on top because God is for him. David has the steadfast love of God which is better than life. His enemies are utterly outside of God's love without access to God's mercy. And so they will meet a humiliating end. We read that here. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. David's enemies will be subdued and shown to be weak by a power much stronger than them. Justice will be delivered. We read they're going to be food for jackals, wild animals, scavengers who eat the leftovers, the bodies that no one bothered to bury. And the mouths of liars shall be stopped. Have you ever seen a muzzled dog? It's sad and pitiful to see. They have this muzzle holding their mouth together so they can't bark, they can't bite, they can't eat, they can't do anything that really gives a dog personality. It's pitiful. And so too with David's enemies. They will no longer speak lies and slander. They may appear to be a threat now, but relief will come. David is sure that deliverance will come in the end. And with stubborn determination against his situation, he rejoices. This, friends, is the, the determination of God to destroy the greatest enemy and the greatest obstacle to your satisfaction, which is sin. It's sin that gets in the way of your satisfaction, that leaves you feeling still empty. And it's to this future hope that we, like David, must cling as we navigate the hardships of life. Faith that endures, faith that perseveres, holds on to hope. But the reality remains that that final future deliverance is not here yet. And the sorrows and longings that meet us in the day-to-day can seem more real than the final, reef, final relief that awaits us. Bills need to be paid. Feelings of loneliness don't go away even after somebody tells you that God is with you. Worry meets us at every turn. Well, this also would have been the case for David, because nothing in his circumstance suggested that the threat to his life would disappear anytime soon. You see, it's precisely because the threat is still so real, so present, that David's satisfaction in God's love is so deep. 
He knows that he may lose his life, but God's love is better than life and anything life may throw at him in this situation. So too for you. Your problems may be great. I'm certain that they are. But your God is greater. So James Montgomery Boyce comments, if we are to be genuinely satisfied with God's love, it must not be in some never-never land, but right here in the midst of this world's disappointments, frustrations, and dangers. Friends, the love of God is not a wishful encouragement for an ideal world. It is a sure comfort for the real world, for real people, and all of the very real difficulties that you will face while living in it. Because you have the love of God, you can, like David, look at all that you are suffering and know that your sorrow will one day give way to rejoicing and you will never thirst in your soul again. How can we know that these expectations are sure realities? What is the grounding of our hope? How can we join in David's song and make this ours? Friends, we can sing this song because before it became a song for us, it was a song for Jesus. Jesus, when he came, lived out and experienced the reality of this psalm in order to ensure that our souls would be satisfied when we cry out, my God, Jesus, the perfect son of God, cried out, my God, in a dry and weary land. In order to give us living water to satisfy the thirst of our soul, he thirsted for God in his soul. So we are able to sing with David, Oh God, you are my God and my soul thirsts for you because on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God. And on the cross, Jesus cried out, I thirst. But he took upon himself the curse of the enemy, the power of the sword, he went down into the depths of the earth, which you and I should have taken. This he did so you could come to his table and be satisfied, and so you could live in the assurance of the coming deliverance. Jesus did these things so that you, when you are in the wilderness, which you may well be, can sing this song of satisfaction And remember the great and steadfast love of God for you. So sing it. Repeat it. Tim Keller calls this the discipline of desire. You repeat these words, commit them to memory, because when you are consumed by desire and longing and need, you will need to exercise the discipline to repeat these words and remember that your desire is ultimately not for these lesser things, but for God, and he has met you in your need. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Amazing love, how can it be? To be loved like this is better than life indeed. May this love be our water in the wilderness and the secret to our satisfaction. Let's pray.
Oh, Lord, you know um, we have wanted wrongly. We've sought satisfaction um, from the pleasures of this world um, instead of you. We've taken good things and made them God things. Oh, Lord, turn us back. Lord, I pray you would press on all of our hearts the words of this psalm, that your love is better than life itself. Oh, Lord, would you teach us that in your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.